Hey folks, Tony Peterson here with Sporting Dog Talk. Thanks for checking in this week. Today, I'm sitting down with a fellow named Pete Copalillo. Pete is the director of Working Dogs for Conservation out in Bozeman, Montana. He's also a griff owner and a hardcore bird hunter, and he brings to the table a pretty interesting perspective on dog ownership and dog training and really the crazy roles that we're asking of dogs, not only in this country to deal with uh, conservation issues and invasive and non-native species, but throughout the world and the interconnectedness of the whole thing and how dogs play such a, a pivotal role in what we're doing with conservation worldwide. Um, very interesting guy, very knowledgeable on dogs. Um, I think you're going to absolutely love this one. If you haven't left us a rating and a review, please do that. That helps so much. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe to Sporting Dog Talk. As always, thank you so much for listening. We really, really, really appreciate it. Come here, bear. Hunt dead, bear. Hunt dead. That dog is family. Do something with a dog. It improves your overall quality of life. Good girl. Hey, Pete, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I'm excited to have you on for multiple reasons. We've we've had a few guests re recently who uh, kind of pointed us toward Working Dogs for Conservation, which is an organization you're involved in, and they've been super interesting. We had Erica Feuerbacher on. We had Hannah Decker, uh, it, it, and it's really kind of opened my eyes to – the amount of different things we're asking of working dogs now that, you know, in, in kind of my community where I come from, it's, it's bird dogs, you know, primarily. And we know what bird dogs do. And, you know, it's, it was a crazy thing to ask bird dogs to find shed antlers 10 years ago. Now everybody just accepts that. And then you look at what you guys are doing and it's pretty wild stuff on the conservation side. So can you just give us a rundown of just some of the different things you guys are involved in? Yeah. Well, our field really took off and began when it, it became possible to get uh, DNA from scat. Um, and, you know, that was in the 90s. And what it meant was that, you know, you could, back then, you could identify it to species. And when I started my conservation career, we used to have this expensive, unreliable process of trying to identify scats to species based on stomach acid. And it, it, it didn't work well at all, and it was really expensive. But then when DNA became possible, you know, it was, it was much more reliable. And back then we were just doing it to species. But now, you know, you can get individuals and relatedness and even hormones and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, that, that for, for a lot of our 25 years was kind of our bread and butter was finding um, scats for threatened, endangered, low density, you know, rare species. Um, so, you know, ecological monitoring essentially. And we did that in all kinds of places for, it started with, with grizzly bears and black bears and moved on to wolves and, and, you know, now we've done kit fox. We, we, we just wrapped up, I think 14 years of kit fox work in California and, you know, mapping where they live, counting their densities, doing all sorts of stuff like that. But over that 25 years, the, the targets have kind of expanded as well because people always say, well, you know, well, can they find this or that, weeds or something else? So now we've expanded into a lot of um, wildlife crime work. So stopping uh, poaching, 
uh, smuggling of ivory, rhino horn. Um, one of the parts of that that I really like is is um, illegal guns and ammunition. That's primarily in Africa because you know then they can seize a gun or a or a uh, ammo before uh, some something's uh, poached. And I should mention these are often homemade muzzle loaders. They're yeah. they're sort of brutal and stuff like that. Um, but now we're doing we're doing the wildlife crime work in eight different countries. Um, we've got a network of over 200 dogs and handlers that we work with to help them, um, and that's expanding to Asia uh, this year. And um, and you know, so over the last five years, that's probably been our biggest growth is is in the wildlife crime work. But I, if I had to guess, I would say in the next five to ten years. The, the the next growth phase will be in um, invasive species and and biosecurity. Um, so you know it started with uh, weeds. We've worked on invasive snails, um, feral swine, um, uh, y- you know brown tree snakes in Guam, and now um, and now we just it, for the last few years have been working on uh, rats and and mice on boats um, because the. Uh, government of South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands and the Falkland Islands government, they spent about 13 million pounds getting rid of rats on South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands. And at the end of that process, they said, we'll never have the opportunity to do this again, because as the glaciers have receded, there are all these little refugia where the, the, the rats um, and mice can get into if they got back there. And they said, you know, we don't think we could poison trap and get rid of them again. Mm-hmm. So our, we, we've, we've now trained three different dogs, and there's, there's one permanently stationed there now who, um, who will sniff boats, all the boats that will go into South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands waters, because these are some of the you know, most important prolific seabird colonies in the world. And they'll make sure that um, – uh, his name's Sammy. He'll make sure that there are no rats or, or, um, or mice on board, which is a complicated – it's a hard task for him to do. So, so those are the three big – big buckets of things that we do, you know, the ecological monitoring, wildlife crime, and, and invasive species. And, you know, it's crazy, all the, the things. And people come to us with all sorts of ideas, you know, from from the fish stuff I think you, you knew about, we can talk about later, to disease and all sorts of things like that. So we're always looking for new things. And 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 the truth is, you know, the the, the hard part is 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 the human dimension of it, you know, getting the samples, figuring out how how we're going to ask the question in the right way you know that the dogs are so good at it that it's it's really rare that they um that they can't do what we ask the challenge is asking in the right way so that that's that's what i want to back up to so in the, sure. in the 90s uh the technology around dna gets to the point where we go okay now we we find a pile of scat out there we can test it and we know definitively this belongs to a kit fox versus somebody's you know english setter running around out there or whatever and right. so now you have a way to train dogs to signal specifically on that scent. Is that where you were going with that? Well, yeah. Um, so, so yes. You know, the the joke I always make is that you know, the as the as as the more information we can get out of these scats you know, increases. And as the cost goes down, you know, I always say the value of turds just keeps going up and up and, and it's, it's really true. So not only can the dogs, you know, just, just find them. And are they very good at identifying it discrimination? So they, you know, a well-trained and well-handled dog, um, you know, really, I'm going to knock on wood, but doesn't make mistakes in that regard. So they're fabulous at it. The way we train, we train a single alert for all of the target sense. So Wicket, who who worked, um, she just passed away just shy of her 16th birthday. Wicket was the most accomplished conservation 
dog ever. Um, she was on 32 different scents during the course of her, her career, um, but she had the same alert for all of them. So it's really up to the handler then, and, and I should be fair, she never in any one landscape was never searching for more than, than five or six of those in any one sort of place. Um, and she worked all over the world. But there are new methods, new techniques of like a two-choice paradigm, they call it, or, um, you know, where, where a dog can tell you this, it's this and not that. But mm-hmm. um, for us, for the most part, it's, it's a single alert, and then it's up to their handler to either, you know, inspect the vehicle or the bag or, the, or you know, pick up the scat or do whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I asked that because um, we, we've had guests on in the past. We had a fellow named Christian Fritz on who trains dogs to help endangered sea turtles down in Texas and signal on the nest so they can, you know, yep. boost the incubation rates and all that good stuff. And his problem was he's dealing with an, uh, an animal on the endangered species list. So getting right. any part, any piece of that is a no-no. And so he had to figure out a way to use sand with some of the amniotic fluid or leavings in there to train. And yep. and I, I have to imagine with the work you guys are doing, probably similar hurdles to get over as far as like, okay, I can't, you know, you might not be able to get a hold of a rhino horn. So what do you do? Or, you know, how, how does that work? Yeah, we've had some similar similar problems, um, but I should say people are amazing, you know, and in, in, in helping. So just here in Bozeman, where I live, you know, when we started working on on ivory and and training the um, wildlife crime dogs for Africa, just on a you know an email list around town here, I said, hey, does anybody have any ivory that that they would like to donate or loan? And you can't believe how much ivory we got. You know, everything from old um, 19th century piano keys to you know carved bottles and things. And people say, you know, my grandmother bought this years and years ago. I feel terrible having it, but you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want it really anymore, but I'd love for it to do some good. So, so that's been wonderful. The other, the other really generous um, sort of actor in that regard has been the U S fish and wildlife service. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the repository in Denver um, has shared a lot of stuff with us, rhino horn included. And so we are now, we have to, you know, keep it locked up and, and, um, and secure Um, and, you know, rhino horn, we can't cross state lines with it. So one of the interesting, and we've done things like that, swabbing, swabbing fish, swabbing reptiles. And, you know, that works pretty well. There's now a new company in France building these, these, are making these little um, scent tubes that you put in with the scent and then you take it away and you can train the dog on that. So that gives us some opportunities for invasive species because then we're not moving. Obviously, you know, we don't have zebra and quagga mussels here in Montana. We had a scare a few years ago, but we've trained dogs on zebra and quagga mussels and on the villagers, but we don't want to be, you know, moving those around or anything like that. So, you know, there are some interesting tech wiggles and we're going to we're going to test that more rigorously to see you know what are the limits of these these different methods but there you know they're always by hook or by crook we kind of figure it out a lot mm-hmm. of times you know and 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 the hardest one is for you know like a i mean we've had this conversation about the saula you know saula is a is a it's a it's actually a bovid that lives in in um in uh vietnam and laos and it may be extinct um, you know, the, the last one I think was 12, 14 years ago that was known. Um, and no one, um, the, the only scat samples they, they kept were, were put in formalin. Um, so we can't use them for, for training. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting challenge, right? How would we, how would we get Sao La 
scat to train on? And and the answer is maybe we, what we would do is, and we haven't done this yet, but um, but you know what we might do is allow that dog to to generalize because you know they do have a tendency, yep. you know, you know, to 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 sort of generalize unless you're very disciplined about it. So if we let that dog generalize to all bovid scat, for example, um, you know, that might we we might be able to do something like that. So it's always and Alice Whitelaw is our our director of program and she's she was you know here at the very beginning she was involved in wolf reintroductions in idaho back in the back in the day and that was the, the origin of her doing this work and she's just a repository of you know she's figured out so many different problems of how to how to train on it where to get samples how, you know and so she's she's fabulous at figuring those mm-hmm. things out and 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 making it work and sometimes you know we might use a zoo animal scats or something like that and then we have to do a little transition when we get out to the field things like that it's all just you know every everyone is different but um you know manage to make it work it's 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 an interesting conundrum because it's such a moving target and the way you know i've i've had to do a fair amount of research on uh, non-native and invasive species uh, for my writing over the years a lot of it's aquatic invasives and it's it's such a moving target you know, not, exactly not right. I mean, it's not, not only in the aspect of training a dog to specifically signal on zebra muscle scent or what have you, but just any level of actual containment in, in the general population. It's just, yeah. and, and then, and then you're dealing with things that you might not be thinking about. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other night when I knew we were going to do this interview. Um, we have a pond in our backyard. I photograph in it all the time. I work my lab in it all the time. And there, there'll be times, especially in May and June, where I'll photograph mallards taken off off the pond, and they'll have leeches hanging off of there, the bloodsuckers hanging off of their breast, you know? Oh, wow. And, or we'll catch a turtle. Me and my little girls catch a turtle. They'll have a leech on it. <laughs> and you go, well, it, it, like, how do you stop that? But And it, I, I say that because people, people you know, the, some people in the general public get very defensive about the new rules around invasives and, you know, the, some of the hoops you have to jump through, you know, here in Minnesota, it's, it's at the boat landings and it's really not very, not a very big deal. It's not a big inconvenience if you follow the rules, but change is bad. And, you know, sure. And so, and people will always say, well, what does it matter if, if you, you know, you're out there training dogs to find zebra mussels, but a turtle can walk across the road and spread them. And I've always been told, and I'm, I'm, I just believe this firmly. It's, it's, we have to be concerned with what we have in that in that aspect, but we have to be really concerned about what's coming. And just listening exactly. to how you talk about how much has evolved since the '90s to today, as far as what you guys can do with invasive species and and these dogs around the world, it's it's a buy buying time kind of move with these. And people don't they don't they they don't want to consider all of the aspects of this and it's there's something else with it too you know you mentioned zebra mussels and we've got them in a whole bunch of lakes out here we just do i mean all so <laughs> much of the pleasure unfortunately of stepping up yeah and it, yeah. it it sucks because they're here you know our water's so connected because we have so much of it and it's just a once it gets in it's pretty yeah. tough you know it's it's not like a there's other places where it's easier to contain those things but people yeah. Some people will look at it and go, man, the fishing got a hell of a lot better in here when the water got cleaned up for the species that I like to fish for. And so they'll go, oh, this is this is good for me. And somebody else is sitting here going, well, the species I like to fish for doesn't do as well in this clean water. And we look we look at this stuff so – it's so common to look through 
just like a little myopic view and be like, okay, well, how did this affect me? How did this affect my walleye fishing or my perch fishing? And yeah. not the whole big picture where this this stuff could be just so deleterious to the environment and yeah. we just don't know. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, you know, the early part of my career was all in Africa. And, and it's interesting because that's a, you know, the sentiment you're expressing is a kind of a uniquely American thing because we're very hung up on what's natural, what's pristine and how, sh- how should it be? The Europeans and, and in Africa and Asia, a lot of times their perspective is how do I want it to be? And so then it becomes a much more management oriented sort of question. And the, you know, it really, it, it, it comes in all the time with the invasives. And the hardest thing about it, the invasive species work with the dogs is, I, you know, I can say with great confidence, our dogs can detect whatever invasive species you want us to. What's the next one? What's the next zebra mussel? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know, because it's in the ballast water of some tank, tanker that's coming from who knows where. So so that's one of the big challenges for us is knowing what's coming next, you know. And and, and when we started the invasive species work, I, I thought, okay, dogs are, are, you know, only for prevention. We're just going to use them for prevention. And then as we got involved with Dyer's Woad, which is a, a you know, a, a plant that was brought to, to make dye to, to this part of the world, you know, it overruns places in Utah. It showed up in Missoula on Mount Sentinel next to the university there, you know, a beloved mountain. And everybody, you know, justifiably freaked out and said, we don't want this whole mountain to be taken over with, with Dyer's Woad. And so they were doing human weed pull days, right? And everybody would go out. These are just people. They'd go out and they'd pull all the Dyer's Woad that they could find. Well, you know, because we're searching with our eyes, mm-hmm. it's we're, we're looking at flowers. And by the time it's flowering, it's setting seed. And one Dyer's Woad plant can set 15,000 seeds. So just by the nature of the search, how we're searching, we we can only search once it's too late. Yep. So, um, so some collaborators from Missoula uh, Weed District and the University of Montana said, hey, could we do our weed pull, the human weed pull, and then bring in the dogs and see if we missed any? Well, they missed over 500 plants. And so the dogs just crushed it. And now they're down. That was oh, six or seven years ago now. And now we're in the in the range of some years we've we found as few as four plants. Um, we've had a series of wet years. And now we'll find, you know, five, six, maybe 19 um, uh, plants. Um, and what we think is going on is is just we're mining the seed bank. You know, mm-hmm. these have been seeds that have been in the seed bank for a while. We just got to wait them out. Um, and hopefully we'll we'll sort of get there. But, you know, that waiting game that you're describing, you know, you, you hear about things like these gene drive mice, you know, or, or releasing um, sterile mosquitoes and things like that. Maybe there's going to be a solution like that for zebra mussels. So if we can keep it under control for a while, that might be exactly – Yep. what we need to do. So, you know, the, the, and the invasive thing, we went from just prevention to then this Dyer's Woad thing, you know, now we're on eradication. We had another project on the Channel Islands in, in California. They worked really hard to eradicate Argentine ants. You know, that's a fascinating story, right? That the founders were all from one colony. So the whole, all of California thinks it's one colony of ants and they're just as super high densities. They, they eradicated them from the Channel Islands, they brought in Tobias, who was a, actually a muscle dog, um, trained on zebra and quagga mussels, brought him in to confirm, I, 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 we were calling them evidence of absence projects, you know, confirm that it's gone. And then, in, in, in fact, they had missed one colony so on in one area, so they went back and, and eradicated that, took them to another island to map the infestation. 
so that they knew where to start in terms of control. So I hadn't even thought of that, you know, because often what happens is, and this happened on the Falkland Islands, they said, well, we've got a few rats here. Well, it turns out they're actually in a much bigger area than than we thought. So, you know, the dogs have, at, at all three stages from early prevention and early detection to then mapping an infestation so that they can, you know, more strategically do their eradication or containment or control or whatever they want to do. And then all the way at that very end game, you know, the last step of eradication, make sure that you get every last one, you know, so, so it's, it's been really cool and fun to watch as dogs plug into all those different parts of the process. Is that, is that the same kind of concept with the, with the, the dogs in the trout streams out there? Is it, is it to identify, you know, is it to identify populations of different kinds of trout, native and non-native? Um, but is it the same kind of thing where you would go in and try to get rid of some of the non-natives and then bring the dogs back and go, did we really get this or not? Yeah, the trout, the trout project was, was born just out of a conversation at an invasive species meeting with um, Carter Cruz. And Carter is a fabulous guy. He's the lead aquatic biologist for um, Turner Enterprises, Ted Turner's um, you know, organization. And, you know, they've done amazing, fabulous things, you know, reintroducing bulls and tortoises and all sorts of cool stuff. And Carter um, restored a stretch uh, that of, of creek that flows into the Madison um, River called Cherry Creek. And he took a little bit of heat for it because they removed all the brook trout and restored uh, West Slope cuts in there. Mm-hmm. And he, we were having a conversation and he was, he was lamenting how slow and expensive um, uh, electrofishing is. And, you know, to go back and do that every year and make sure it, it, they're not either coming up from the Madison or getting reintroduced or maybe they missed some. And he said, what do you think? You think you could do a dog, you know, to train a dog to do this? And Megan Parker, who's one of the four women who founded the organization, Meg's fearless. She'll just, she'll, she'll just, she'll try anything, right? So she said, I don't know, let's try it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we collaborated with uh, Carter and the Fish Technology Center here in Bozeman. Um, and they've got these cool experimental flumes. So a biologist named Molly Webb, who mostly works on sturgeon, sort of coordinating that. And, and so we went from testing swabs on the fish to can they d- discriminate a rainbow from a brook trout to a to to then having fish in a flowing stream but constrained in terms of where they can go and then we took all the way out to the flying d to ted turner's place and put brook trout in traps hidden up under the banks and and they were successful at all those sort of stages so our vision for that was to a monitor you know you might you could use it to monitor bull trout or sturgeon you know or some of the more rare um species we never it was interesting it never really took off the way we 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 thought it might um washington state has an interesting law that 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 requires setbacks on any stream that's occupied by fish and so our first application, we, we applied for a lot of funding to go after it to, to work on that because they wanted to update their maps and do all that sort of stuff. Um, and it never never got funded. So it, that's one of those interesting ones. It's just kind of sitting there waiting for an application. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're excited and confident that, you know, the dogs can do it. So when it comes along, you know, we'll, we'll go for it and apply it where it's useful. A lot of, you know, the stuff we do is, is it's all very applied. It's, you know, there has to be a direct conservation sort of outcome. We do, we do proof of concept 
concept stuff when it opens the door to new mm-hmm. applications like that. And that's what that was. That's what the brucellosis um, work was, you know, just demonstrating that it was, that it's possible, you know, but unless there's a, a an application, somebody wants to use it for a conservation outcome, then, you know, then we'll, we'll, you know, we don't do it just to do it. We, we, you know, we, we do it to have an impact and to, to save the world really. <laughs> um, there's, there's a couple things I want to ask, but something just occurred to me. Um, mm-hmm. Has, has anybody looked into training a dog to work to identify areas with prevalence of chronic wasting disease where it hasn't shown up in tests yet? Has that, is that come up? Yeah, it is. You know, we got asked about that a lot early on, um, you know, particularly with, you know, there was the moose in Star Valley. That must be like 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. um, you know, in Idaho, and everybody was worried about it coming into Greater Yellowstone. And we hemmed and hawed for a while about it because of some of the ethical issues, you know, of have, sticking a dog's nose in, a, in prions and a disease that we didn't know about. And there were some anecdotes from Colorado about dogs that were with those deer in the, in the pens in Colorado. And, you know, they weren't systematically monitored, but people said, well, they didn't seem to be dying. Um, but fortunately, um, uh, the state of Pennsylvania and the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, which is just fabulous. They're, they're awesome. Um, Cindy Otto is the director there and it was sort of born out of 9-11 and those, those rescue dogs and they do fabulous stuff. They've done a lot of the cancer dog, you know, mm-hmm. work and all of that. They just got 4 million bucks to, to work on it and do it in a really big, like a clinical trial, you know, rigorous sort of way. So we're thrilled about that and they're close collaborators and we keep an eye on each other and they're really set up to to do it, you know, um, with their facilities and all that. So stay tuned for that. I think it'll be really interesting, um, what comes of it and, and we'll see, you know, it, maybe that'll provide a management tool that, that, you know, my guess is the, the what we're going to learn from it is that it's in a lot more places than we realize, yeah. but you know, but that's important. It's important to know that. Yeah. It's well, what's interesting to me, I mean, that that in a concept in and of itself is interesting because you can get ahead of the game a little bit like you're talking about with the rats and the Falcon Islands, things like that. Yeah. But what what is so fascinating about this dog work that you guys are doing is you go back 30 years and you start having some technology that gives you the upper hand in one capacity. And then, you know, you, you're talking about monitoring pop, really, really low density populations of animals that might even be extinct in areas. And so you see these camera trap uh, situations going on where, they're, you know, biologists are out there dropping cameras every so many, you know, a couple hundred yards or whatever and trying to get actual pictures or video of these animals. Yep. And all this technology is coming in. And at the same time, this one constant is that a dog's nose is yeah. damn near all the technology you need to do this. Even when yeah. combined with these, these amazing advances we have in lab work and everything, you still go back to this, just this dude out there in the woods that evolved over the last, you know, yeah. several thousands Isn't and thousands great? of years. It's, it's incredible. And all like you, you mentioned something, you, you said something that comes up so often on this is we just need to figure out how to ask our dogs the right question and they'll give us, a near perfect answer. Right. Yeah, they are. They're amazing. I laugh all the time because, you know, I, we keep track of all the cool, amazing stuff people are using dogs for, you know, and, and the cancer stuff is, you know, cancer. And now it's, you know, epilepsy and all sorts of other stuff. And you read all those articles that, you know, because the press loves it, right? The press mm-hmm. loves all these, these things and all of them at the end, almost always it ends with somebody saying, and now we're going to try to build a gadget that does the same thing. And I just laugh and say, 
why do you want to do that? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it'll it'll cost way more. It won't be nearly as flexible. It certainly won't work for a ball or kibble or whatever, you know. And we're hung up on this idea that if it's tech, it's, it's um, you know, fancier or more reliable. But, you know, the truth is they're just amazing at it. And, you know, people often say that, well, how do they do that? How can they smell that? And, you know, I always – you hear different numbers, but, you know, we, we, we use something like, you know, 12 – percent of our brains for vision, right? And that's our primary sense. That's our world, right? That's what we see and think and all of that. Well, you know, dogs, it may be as high as 60% of their brains for olfaction. And so, you know, I'm sure you know fishermen who, who they just get a glimpse of a, of a, a trout rolling, you know, feet underwater and, and, and they know, oh, that's a brown or it's a bull trout or whatever. And, and, you know, the olfactory equivalent of that is is and and they're way better, so it makes perfect sense. So we just had dogs go down to to Patagonia to Torres del Paine National Park to work with uh, Panthera, the cat conservation organization, and they were wanting to use um, they they want to monitor mountain lions, pumas, cougars, whatever down there um, under a series of different treatments. So livestock guarding dogs, outreach and education, fladry stuff like that. Um, and they so they wanted to refine the methods for counting, and so they had drones, you know, with front-looking infrared and all that stuff, and and dogs down there at the same time. And I said we should have a a, a bet with the maker of the drone company who can find more cats. And and you know the the joke was that um, that you know we bet a big bottle of scotch or something like that. Well, the wind was so high and the temperatures were so cold that um, the the drone never got off the ground. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but you know, the dogs were finding tons of scats. So, yep. you know, it's a, it, it's a great, it, it's a great story. Cause they're, they're good at this. There's a reason we keep these guys next to us. So that, that's one of the really fun things is just to, to keep track of how it's all, you know, what, what are the new ways that dogs can plug into, to conservation work? It's really fun. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it is really fun and it's fun to see, um, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of Africa work and the, the rhino poaching and the ivory market. And what what I was reading about that and kind of in preparation for this, I noticed, I, I saw a line, maybe it was on your guys' website about how, you know, we, we sit here and we think, okay, the, you know, kind of like the Asian, Central Asian market is where a lot of this stuff goes, um, which is true. But you also, I think it was on your website, talked about Washington state being kind of a, a, a place where a lot of this stuff shows up. And I don't think a lot of people in this country would, would, you know, I know I hadn't heard that and I've, I've paid attention to these issues pretty, pretty closely. Yeah. And so it's easy. Once again, it's kind of easy to think, okay, well, this is an issue for Africa and Asia, you know, and yeah, right. okay. We want rhinos to be around, but you know, it's, yep. I always say when it comes to conservation, it's like, very, very easy to, yes, I'm on the side of conservation. I want elephants to survive and everything. But when it's like, hey, well, then why don't you bring out your checkbook and, you know, and, and help? Right. People are like, well, you know, I, I don't love elephants that much. And yeah. so it's it's kind of easy for us here to be disconnected from that. And I didn't realize there was sort of a gateway over there in the northwest corner of our country where a lot of this stuff was coming in. Yeah, and and a lot of stuff's going out too, so it, it's been fascinating to 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 sort of scratch the surface at, at a lot of these things. So you know, it, a, a lot of the numbers are contentious. Some people will say the U.S. is a is a high demand country, and some people will say, well, there is demand here, but it's not. The truth is, we really don't have good 
a good handle on what's coming in or what's going out. One of the interesting things that we've found is, um, and in the last, just in the last year, we we started working with state wildlife management um, agencies, and there are 29 states that have dog programs. 27 of them are really focused on on just game species and game species violations. So ducks and geese and turkeys and whitetails and stuff like that. You know the classic. You know, the, the, the guy's got him hidden in his trunk or under, you know, in the, in the bed of his truck or whatever and is over his limit. But increasingly, North American, uh, like turtles, for example, and, and, and species are, and bears, um, bear parts are being trafficked to Asia. And one of the interesting things is we only, for USDA APHIS and Customs and Border Protection and the Fish and Wildlife Service, only monitor things that are coming into this country and staying in this country. So you can take you can take turtles and put them in a box and mail them to Asia and nobody's going to inspect that box. They might on the other end in Asia, but not coming out of here. So the truth is we don't know what's what's mm-hmm. leaving this country. Um, and so we've been we've been working a lot with um, we helped establish and launch the the Conservation Canine Officers Association, and all the states who have programs are now joining and 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 we're going to start expanding all the things and they're doing you know the states that are doing it like in Florida they do really cool stuff they've got dogs trained on saltwater and they'll alert to saltwater it's a very clever way to do it right because mm-hmm. anything that's in saltwater it might be legal but if it is legal then it needs to be documented and permitted and if it's not then it's it's by definition illegal so and they're going to want to know what's going on here so there's a lot there's a lot of low hanging fruit there's a lot of work to do and and a lot of stuff we just don't know about mm-hmm. well yeah you're dealing with the, the logistics of monitoring a black market <laughs> you know how do you how do you pin that down um, yeah. and you know you I, one I, hole and it comes out another it's it's you know yeah, yeah. and it, it makes me wonder you know you, you mentioned the black bear thing and black bear parts and i'm i'm assuming you're talking about bear gallbladders and you know that's been a big issue for a long time and i think about stuff like that maybe this is the part maybe this is part of the reason it's kind of easy to be dismissive about this cuz we look at you know i look at like ground up rhino horn and i go you, know, you guys are still think this is an aphrodisiac and you're going to pay a crazy amount of money. Like, are you, are you nuts? And the bear gallbladder is the same thing. And hopefully, you know, in, in addition to the efforts that are being put into conservation and monitoring this stuff, hopefully there's just an education level that keeps increasing where more and more people will go, this doesn't make sense. Like we're killing exactly. this, this rhino for the stuff that we don't need, you know, like maybe we can get Pfizer involved or somebody can make something of the equivalent and yeah. we'll just, we'll let this go. And you just hope yeah. that we eventually move w- worldwide in that direction of just more understanding that some of this stuff that, you know, th- this is ancient BS that we, we know isn't true anymore. And even if it were true, even if it was like the best benefit possible for you in an aphrodisiac way or whatever, like it's still not worth, it's still not worth what's happening for you to get this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And one of the crazy weird things is we've seen a number of, of species. Rhino horn's a great example. Back when, when I started working in Africa, you know, in the, in the nineties, it was just aphrodisiac. Rhino horn was believed to be an aphrodisiac. That's it. But now in Vietnam in particular, it's believed to have all these medicinal qualities and to help you drink more and have a higher alcohol tolerance and increase blood pressure and all sorts of crazy things. It's it's the new snake oil, mm-hmm. right? It's just, you know, like back in the old West. And there are all these crazy, you know, ideas about what it can and can't do. And 
you know, one saving grace is that, that there's a lot of fake stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a lot of real. So it, it, it's hard. It's just a hard thing to get your head around. And, you know, as, as we've watched elephants, you know, because, you know, we all love elephants have been amazing in terms of galvanizing people and understanding about wildlife crime and the global wildlife trade and all of that. You know, one of our fears is that is, is when the ivory trade ends, you know, will, will people forget that there are hundreds of other species, you know, live animals, birds, reptiles, parts, plants, you know, wood, so many things are being trafficked. Um, and we really need to, to get on top of that. And it's, um, it's, it's scary. It's scary just how much is there. And when you look at container shipments, um, and, you know, the percentage of containers that actually get inspected is very, very low. Yep. Um, and and in a lot of countries, wildlife is considered a trifling crime, right? Mm-hmm. So people, you know, they might be looking for drugs or guns or, you know, human trafficking. And and the sad thing is that, you know, the same people who are trafficking wildlife, you know, they're, they're doing, they're trafficking guns and ammunition and maybe even people because, because they're interested in the money. They're not, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's what, it's what, so it's a, it, we're going to be doing this for a very long time. Yep. These, these issues are not simple. <laughs> they're, no. You know, we, we no. had a fellow on here um, from Montana named John Norris, who was, you know, maybe you've heard of him. He worked out in California and, um, you know, worked on the drug cartel grow sites out in California on public land. And when you dig into that issue and, you know, they were using Belgian mouths as, as, uh, apprehension dogs. And it's a, it's a great story. And what it ties back to is, okay, well, not only border security, but what's happening when these people get in here and okay, you say, well, who cares if they're growing marijuana, but then you look at the poisons they're using and all the incidental kills and, and that stuff's leaching into groundwater and there's, it's like, these these issues get so much more complex and that's it kind of goes back to you know when you talk about elephants it's it is easy to get people to rally around certain species you know you look at the wolf issue yeah. in this country right now it's easy to get people fired up about wolves fired up about yeah. elephants but some kind of weed in in a non-native weed somewhere not so much some some insects not so much and you know we can see this down in florida right now you know, because Florida is just the perfect environment for a lot of non-natives. And you look at the, the iguanas that are down there and you look at some of the snakes that have come in and how it's affecting the nesting bird populations and some of the mammal populations and this stuff. And then you get into the water and you go, okay, you know, I, the lionfish and the peacock bass. And you just got these this kind of like weird Petri dish of, you know, like, you don't know what's going to grow out of this yet, but you know, you know, it's going to change drastically. And all of this stuff that you guys are working on, I look at it and I go, it feels like a task that's just so monumental. It's like, how do you even start? Like, it, I, th- I think it's like the way people look at, if you take somebody who's never run a mile in their life and you say, go run a marathon, what do they think? Like, I hate running. Yeah. I don't want to start and I don't want to work through one mile, then a 5K, then a 10K, then a half marathon. Like, it feels like yeah. too much, but you got to do yeah. something. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, the, there are certain things. I mean, one thing I, I, I love about, you know, this work and this job is that you know, you never wake up and say, does it matter? Right. I, I, I worry about, am I as effective as I could be? Could we be more efficient? Could we have a bigger impact? Sure. You worry about those things, but never, you know, does, does the work we're doing matter? And, you know, I think about, you know, I think about places like, like India, you know, if tigers can survive in India, we can, we can make this work. You know, there's a population of, of brown bears within 50 miles of Rome, 
you know, in Italy, one of the most domesticated <laughs> places in, in, in the world. And, and, you know, large carnivores in, in all large carnivores in Europe are increasing. So there are a lot of hopeful stories. And we've, you know, we've been involved with black-footed ferrets over the last few years. And that's a fabulous, um, you know, great, great story, you know, with a, with a dog angle, right? Because mm-hmm. it was the dog that brought it back to the house in Matizzi. Um, and, you know, now we've got coming up around 30 populations of ferrets out there in the world. And, um, and so, you know, they're, and, and it's not easy to be sure, you know, plague is hammering, hammering, you know, some of those, but, you know, weathering a plague outbreak looks a lot easier when you've got 30 populations as when you got one yep. or two or three. So, you know, those, those are hopeful things. And, and it's really fun. The, the dog angle is really fun because, because people get excited about it. You know, you were mentioning the, the boats and resistance to inspections and all that. And we've got three dogs up in Alberta. You know, usually what, what would happen is when these visual inspections of a boat, you know, it it can take an hour to do a big boat, you know, thoroughly. And then other people are sitting back there thinking, oh man, I'm stuck here. You know, they're grumpy. They're not happy about it. And number one, the dogs are much, much faster. You know, they'll do a big boat in three to five minutes. Um, so the line moves more quickly, but people who would normally blow past those stations, they see the dogs and they're like, Hey, can he search my boat? You know, and they get excited about it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice, it's, it's a nice little niche that gives to feel good and to, to, to get to do stuff like that. And, and it's funny cause the, you know, the, 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 a lot of people, you know, aren't really aware uh, that, that, that dogs can or will do this kind of stuff. And, you know, bird dog people, we, we know we've seen them do it, right. We've seen them, you, you know, you walk up, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced that where you come walking up and you say, there is no way there's going to be a pheasant in there. They, you can't hide a bird in that. And as, as soon as you think you've, you've, you know, walked past it or whatever, pop, 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 it goes up, you know, yep. and you go, of course it was there. Of course he knows better than I do, you know? So. I mean, I, that happens to me. I'm, I'm ashamed about it because it happens to me all the time where I will do that. I will doubt my dog and my dog, you know, she's seven years old. She doesn't screw up on pheasants anymore. <laughs> like if, if she gets birdie, yeah. just get ready. Cause she's not, yeah. it's not a skunk. It's not a pork. It's a freaking pheasant. And I do it exactly. every year because I'll inject my bias into it. And I'll look at that situation and go, there's only six square feet of grass left there. There's no way. And of course, she's not She's not going to get that wrong. That is like, that would be the equivalent of like us seeing an elephant standing in our yard eight feet away from us. We wouldn't mistake that. We'd go, holy crap, there's an elephant right there. For her to get downwind right. of a pheasant sitting in the grass waiting to flush after yeah. she's trailed it for how many yards, they're, they're not going to screw that up. It's yeah. A, yeah, it's true. It, Trust the nose. Trust the nose. You, you, you got it. I mean, they, they, their abilities are crazy. And that's what, yeah. what we're running into, which I think is – it's just so neat about this and what you guys are working on is you're just – not only is it the cause itself or the many, many causes, but it is the understanding of what our dogs are capable of. And that's that's a common thing that comes up with our guests on this podcast is – we, we spend a lot of time with dogs uh, not really asking them to do new stuff. Like they had their roles, you know, and as they've become more family member-ish and less just put them in the kennel and back, it feels like this this is just evolving. We're like, man, our dogs are accompanying us more places. We're asking them, you know, on the adventure dog side to go kayak with us and do, you know, yeah. more crazy things with us. And then you see – these dog lovers get into a position with the Fish and Wildlife Service or these conservation officers, and they start they start working on these new problems. And, and when when you look at what we ask of them and what you guys are asking of them, 
it's the same thing over and over and over again. It's just, hey, here's what I want you to find. I'm going to figure out how to lead you into this. And so when you, when that dog makes that connection and the false positives are gone and you can go, this dog understands this. It's working for me because they love jobs. Yep. They're going to signal on this. Then it's like that behavior that they don't lose that. That's riding a bike for us, man. Like they, when yeah. they get on that and then you go, okay, well, if this dog can do this, can I add another scent in? And you know, you mentioned the dog that had 35, 36, whatever scents it was, it was yeah. comfortable with. Eventually we'll have dogs where you'll be sitting here and you'll go, yeah, we have a dog that does 150 cents and 175. There's, there's no reason. I, I don't think anyway that there's any reason why we can't get there with them. Yeah, no, it, you're, you're exactly right. It is amazing. And you know, one of the, one of the interesting distinctions in, in our field, in the conservation detection field as, as distinct from, from, you know, sporting and hunting dogs is that, that we select for, and, and we're a little bit, different and sort of novel in that we rescue the dogs we we train but um we select for behavioral characteristics and and really it's just ball drive just mm -hmm. crazy crazy ball drive and the reason for that and and we do tend to we we do have we got to have a lot of labs but we tend to shy away from a lot of bird dogs because they're inherently interested in birds and that's a distraction they may or may not be on a project and if we're going after grizzly scatter wolverine or whatever we don't we don't want them getting distracted on birds so being all about the ball and and that was the for me anyway because I'm, I'm trained as an ecologist i'm not a i'm not a dog trainer i came to this world through the conservation side because i was doing conservation and hiring and asking these guys hey can you do this can you do that and they said you know um and then i got deeper into it through through that route but um the the aha for me was like was realizing oh okay if they're if the toy drive ball drive is the, the motivator, then they can search for anything. They don't care. I mean, there's no inherent, you know, interest in weeds or, or, you know, eh, you know, there some of the biological sense like ivory and rhino horn, it might be a little bit interesting, but the idea, all of them, they're just a vehicle to, to have a party and a, and a, and, and ball, you know, just like Hannah Decker, your, you know, earlier thing about, about, you know, archeological bones, like, yep. Sure, a dog might dig up a bone and chew on it a little bit, but you know, yep. particularly when they're, you know, they're, they're, so it's it's amazing to get to to take that characteristic and say, okay, do whatever you want with it, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah, I think you're exactly right. We're just scratching the surface in terms of the the things they can do in terms of physiological changes and and scent matching and individuals and all sorts of, you know, it's it's there's there's a ton. We're not going to run out of stuff to do. No, and it's it's all just evidence of of what the, what our relationship is with dogs and what it's become and how we get them to do something for us that they also enjoy, which is like the root of good training. It's the root of a good life with a dog. If you say, Hey, working dog, I want you to find this. They go, yes, please. And when they find it, you party and everybody's happy. And that dog goes, yeah. this is a fun game for me. And you know, you, you talk about ball drive. It's, it's essentially non-specific prey drive. Like when you talk about yeah. a bird dog, you go, okay, well, that, that, that dog's been bred for generations upon generations to love this particular type of hunt. You've got other dogs that don't quite have that, but they have that hunting drive. It's just prey drive. And instead of a pheasant, it's a, it's a ball. It's, it's a, but it's a yeah. reward and it's a hunting behavior and that's all they want. And when you, yeah. when, you know, when we look at, it, it would be very easy to assume if you're training a dog to track, you know, rhino poachers in Africa, 
the process would be v- widely different than training a chucker hunting dog in Idaho or a quail dog down in Georgia. Really, it's not until the last couple steps when you really diverge and go, okay, now here's specifically what I want you to find. But overall, it's it's there's such a blueprint to it and it's just working with the dogs. Yeah. And what's going on inside the dog is is, is mostly the same sort of thing too. And in particular, that deeply co-evolved relationship, you know, with, with us. And, and, and the fact that it's not only that dogs have evolved to be with us, but I, I really believe a lot of that early, you know, early work that a, that they've been with us much longer, you know, than, than the fossil record will, because, you know, some of the behavioral changes may have come long before morphological changes, but also that, w- that we're responding to them, you know, and, and, um, you know, I, I got to meet, uh, Meg Daly Olmert, the, the woman who did the, the, uh, oxytocin, the, the, the love hormone, you know, research with dogs and mm-hmm. no learning the dogs, mothers who look at their kids and, and dogs, they, they, they both drip oxytocin, you know, and, and it's just amazing. And, you know, all of us knows that, right? We adore our dogs and, and, um, you know, but it's, it, it really is, it's, it's amazing and, and how psyched they are to do it for us. Mm-hmm. And I, I always, I, you know, I always feel terrible when I miss a bird, you know, and my dog and he's still, and he's just psyched to go after the next one. I think, thanks, thanks buddy. <laughs> thanks for letting me off, <laughs> off the hook and keep doing it. You know, they're very forgiving. They're very yeah. forgiving. We, we, the, the very last trip we took buddy and I down to Nebraska to hunt pheasants. Um, I had a really good day and my buddy had a really bad day and <laughs> he, uh, he was getting, getting some looks from the dogs, but you know, it's, it's wild roosters and it was, you know, public land late season. You're, you're not going to get every one of them, but it's, it's awesome to watch those dogs just kind of shake it off and go, Oh, what the hell? I guess we get to keep playing, you know? And it, it's actually, you know, obviously can't prove this, but like my dog, I think the worst days that my dog has in the field is if we go out and limit out early and then we have to quit because my dog does not understand that. And she's like, no, let's not. Why, why are we getting in the truck now? It's just getting good. And she, she doesn't, she doesn't like that a whole lot. Um, You're running, you're running a Griffon, right? Yeah. Um, I have a, a, a Griff named Birch. He came from about two hours away in Laurel. Um, uh, 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 they're they're kind of, Griffons, I guess, are you know more common in this part of Montana. You see, w- my hunting buddy has a lab, and he calls Griffs the new labs of Bozeman. Um, <laughs> the, it's so uh, Bozeman to have that kind of dog. Yeah, it is. I, the story, I don't know if it's true, but the story I heard is we have these sporting goods stores out here called Bob Wards, and mm-hmm. apparently Bob Wards was a uh, Griff guy, and he brought Griffs here. And so you see a lot of them around, and they're great. He's a, he's a great dog. He just turned seven and, you know, he's still getting better, you know, and, and, um, it's, we have a lot of fun. He, that, uh, so we, we had Morgan Mason on from Meat Eater. He's got a Griff too. And there's another guy in the, in the Bozeman office there at Meat Eater that has a Griff. And it's one of the dogs, one of the few dogs out there that fits for, you know, for, for a hunter, it fits a couple of different kind of roles that you just can't find very often. You know, you get a pointer out of it. You get uh, a dog that will duck hunt enthusiastically, um, and it and it can handle the wide ranging, wide open type of hunting scenarios you have out there. And you don't see that. You know, where I live here in Minnesota, it's lab country, and that kind of dog isn't quite as necessary. But I see it. I'm starting to see them in more and more places. I'm starting to talk to trainers who I really respect, who've dealt with all kinds of breeds, who will say, you know. 
I had a griffin, and man, that dog was really, really interesting to me. And I, I can see like this shift coming where I, I think we're going to see a lot more of those dogs in the future. Yeah, they're fun. They're they're great, you know. And and they, they the other the other nice thing is they've got a good off switch too. Mm-hmm. You know, you can put up with them the three hundred and whatever days of the year that you don't hunt. But um, yeah, I mean, I I just love to to bird hunt, you know. So I'll hunt whatever, you know. And we get out for for blue grouse a lot because that's close to home here in Bozeman. But then as soon as pheasants open, we go up to the high line and do some prairie prairie birds. And he loves that. And you know, he he. He likes duck hunting. Um, interestingly, you, you know, I, I I shot a pheasant one time, went in the water. It was it was a bitter cold day, and he jumped in, went underwater to get the thing. Uh, and and then sometimes we'll go duck hunting, and, and a duck will hit the water, and he'll sort of look around like, well, maybe the wind will blow it over, over this way. <laughs> he'll go get it, but he's not nearly as enthusiastic about the ducks as he is about about pheasants and and the upland birds. But you know, I guess that's the nature of a of a versatile dog is they don't you know they don't do everything quite as well, but you you know, we have a blast. It's really, it's really fun. Yeah. I don't, I don't think just, you know, from my experience, I really don't think that dogs love anything more. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why I love to hunt roosters so much is like the dog work. I can tell that's my dog's favorite. She's like, you know, two scoops. Yes, please. I love it. And you know, my dog, if we go duck hunting, she's stoked. She's a lab, but yeah. I really think that dogs just inherently like, you know, the, the one component of duck hunting that you just can't ignore is the steadiness factor. Like you got to sit here and you got to be quiet and that's not in a dog's nature versus yeah. getting out into a bunch of CRP grass and going, Hey, let's find them. They just, there's a difference to it. So I think it's, yeah. I think there's degrees and, you know, there's going to be people who are like, my dog loves duck hunting more than anything. I'm not saying dogs don't love it. Sure. Like my dog loves it. I just don't oh, think yeah. she loves it as much as pheasant hunting. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, you, you mentioned about the ball drive versus the bird drive and the dogs that you guys rescue and that you guys are using for your organization. You know, when you, when you back off of, you know, maybe their favorite thing to do and you get into duck hunting and then you back off again and you have like shed antler hunting. There's, there's no dog out there that loves shed antlers more than a pheasant. Like, I, I just don't believe that for a second. You know, like they just, there's more fun in something wild and running right. and sloughing off scent and the whole thing versus just a bone laying on the ground, but they'll do it. And then you could back off to something else. And right. it's, you know, it's, it's just interesting kind of to kind of observe when you, when you're, you are a bird dog owner and then you're exposed to these other dogs, like what they really love and then what, yeah. what they'll do for us no matter what, either way. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. The truth is, you know, they, they love getting out with us. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and to collaborate and to work together and, and, you know, to please us. And so, you know, my dog, <laughs> he's got a little stuffed black footed ferret, you know, and at, when he gets all excited after he eats, he goes and he picks it up and he brings it to me. Like, you know, that's the best thing. That's the highest value toy in the house. So that's, that's it for, for, you know, today, but obviously, yeah. And I don't know what it is about pheasants. I mean, you know, even even now, as a as a seven year old, if we get into super high density of of roosters, he, he he'll still lose his mind a little bit sometimes. It's just they're crack. There's something about it that just overwhelms them. This is this is just my opinion, but I think you know I I hunt woodcock, ducks, geese, uh, rough grouse, quail when we get the chance, and pheasants. That, that's primarily we, we've hunted sharp tails and prairie chickens a little bit too but where i live it's just the, the, the them and quail are harder to get to 
And sure. I just think, you know, we're, we're learning more and more about cortisol levels in dogs and problem solving and how beneficial it is to their mental health. You know, we always, we think of it in terms of, oh, yeah. my dog's got to be physically healthy, but they're problem solvers, man. And I just yeah. think a wild rooster makes them problem solve in a way that probably a covey of quail or a rough grouse that isn't as likely to run. I just, I think there's a different game there for them. And they're out there yeah. maybe just solving a little, a, a few more problems. And I think it's just such a, obviously it's a very physical thing and they love that. There's the hunt yeah. there, but I think there's like a mental aspect to it of it where they're like, oh, where did he, yeah. where did he do now? And, you know, how did yeah. he cut through here and why did I lose this? And I, yeah. I think there's something to, maybe I'm crazy, but it just feels that way. I think you're exactly right. And I think, you know, Birch's breeder, John Arkins from um, from Spruce Creek, Griffons, he said this exactly the same thing. We were, I was talking, you know, about bird launchers and planted birds and this and that, and try, you know, because trying to get them just perfect, right? You want your puppy to be perfect. And, you know, he said, stay out of the way. Praise <laughs> his successes and ignore his failures for his first couple of years because there's no better teacher than wild birds. Mm-hmm. You know, you can try to create these problems, but, you know, running roosters and, you know, and, and, you know, for a pointing dog at a few people say, well, you're, you're not going to let that dog hunt roosters. Are you? And he'll, that'll screw him up. And, you know, his first year or two, I thought is, you know, he, he'd go and he'd chase a rooster and he'd bust it. And I think, ah, oh, I've just created a, you know, wire haired flushing Griffon, not a pointing Griffon. And then sure enough, when they hold, he, he holds. So he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's figuring them out yeah. and, and you know they they they're constantly they're constantly challenging them with far harder better challenges than we can do. Yep. So and I think they just they love it. Yeah, it's and it's, and it's great fun to watch. You know, yep. just in the last couple of years, he's really figured out that we go around different sides of cover. You know, I used to have to trick him. I used to have to start around the the you know the high side of a thicket or something, and then sneak around the other side. And and now he gets it. He just understands. Oh, we're going to go on different sides. You know, mm-hmm. and that's just so fun to watch because he gets it. He knows that that we're working together, and that's that's great. Well, that is <clears throat> that's something that. As, as a bird hunter, you recognize that behavior, that evolved behavior in him, and you go, that's exactly what I want, and he figured that out. But it's it's also, to me anyway, that's sort of testament to getting out of the dog's way, because you see people who are, are trying to force dog behavior, and we, we don't see this as much in training anymore, but it still, it still exists, and what you realize is if you if you if you're not trying to force that dog in a specific you're asking them like hey this is what i want buddy let's let's work through steps to get this they trust you and they go you know a dog that's scared of you isn't going around the other side of the cover he's going to stay with you until you tell him exactly what to do that dog learned at some point like okay he wants me to be here and work this and he's going to do this and it just we get more birds this way and I firmly think they make those connections. The more time you spend with positive reinforcement training and the more time you spend in the field, just letting that dog figure that stuff out, you know, and yep. if he doesn't get a reward, your pointing dog doesn't get a reward from flushing that rooster way out there. And so he's, he may think, you know, enough of that, those times, Hey, I didn't get to retrieve it. He doesn't yeah. seem super happy. We're not partying. They, they may work the next rooster just a little bit different, a little bit different, a little bit yeah. different until more of them are sitting and then the whole thing comes together. When that happens, that dog's looking for that. Like you said, it's crack, man. He's looking for that the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You know, particularly with a lot of the new, more progressive, positive 
you know, reward-based training to see dogs really confident. You know, I often, I often talk about a sort of defiantly obedient dog who, you know, when they're out there and they're on scent and you say, Hey, there's nothing over there. Let's go. And, and, and you can see them say, uh-uh, there's, there are birds over there. You know, that's really cool to watch them and, and to be confident. And I think back in the day, you know, when it was, you know, you had guys rolling their dogs and all the dominance and all that old, old school stuff, you know, a lot of those dogs, they just didn't do anything because they were scared to, mm-hmm. to do it. And, and, you know, I think a lot of those, you know, going back to the, them showing us all the new things they can do. I think a lot of that's coming from confidence and excitement yep. that, that can come out now because, because it's a party, because it's fun. Yeah. That, the confidence thing can't be overstated. And it's, it's one of those things. If you think about, um, in an awful lot of places, traditional bird cover, you know, you're working you know, a 40 acre chunk or an 80 acre chunk or a section and it's a square or, or, you know, generally some kind of square shaped cover. And we just walk in, especially if we're hunting with a bunch of people and we have a route we go, okay, we push it down this way. We follow the outside edges around and that experience is one thing. And if you do it enough, your dog goes, okay, well, we we hunt the outside. That's how we do it. This is where we go. But if you go out with your dog by yourself and you just say, hey, we're working at your pace, we're going to go wherever you tell me to, and you watch that dog relax and go, okay, now I I don't have to worry about the other people. I don't have to worry about other dogs. I can play the wind the way I need, and I can, you know, I see a little patch cover here. I run over here, check it. And when you have that experience with your dog, you realize how often without even thinking about it, we're just absolutely getting in the way of their success. And it's, (laughs) I mean, it's, and it's a weird thing. We say it all the time, but until you do it and you get out there, I mean, I'm like, this is going to sound super cocky, but when I go hunting with my dog now, especially if we're late season pheasants, which is kind of our thing, I'm kind of surprised if we're not limited out by like lunchtime most days, because if it's just me and her, it's just her leading the way. And she knows how to do that stuff. And all I got to do is shoot straight enough times to where, to where back at the truck. And when you have that experience, it's so vastly different than a lot of our traditional bird hunting experiences where we're like, this is the direction. Here's all the distractions I'm going to introduce to you. And it's, it's just so, it's so freaking fun. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. One of my favorites, one of the reasons I love to hunt the blue grouse is because you're high up in the mountains. You're not, you're not playing boundaries or worrying about, you know, uh, fence lines or this, that. You just go. I often say I pick the, I pick the parking spot. And after that, it's up to Birch yep. and, and we go where we go. And, and, and it's, and it's amazing how many times we can start, you know, we'll start up the same draw and end up with a totally different hunt, you know, that, 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 you know, maybe in an area we've never even been to just because, you know, he goes for it and mm-hmm. things are a little bit different. Yeah. It's, it, it, it is really nice. And it's so lucky that we can here in Montana, we've got big open places where you can do that. You know, you can just walk and let them go and, yep. and do what they're going to do. So, yeah. It's well, fun. you, you find it's a matter of scale, right? Like that's, that's almost a necessity with blue girls because where they live, like you, you wouldn't want to plan out a route probably with them because you would just be defeating yourself because they're just where you're going to find them. And there's an awful lot of, it's like elk hunting. There's a hell of a lot of space between elk a lot of times. That's what my buddy always says. Elk are where you find them. Yep. And there's just no way around it. And, you know, we think about that, you know, say you're living out in the Northeast or you're in the Midwest and you go, well, I don't have that opportunity. It's just a matter of scale. You know, if you, if you get into, you know, 320 acres of good pheasant cover, 
you know, yeah, you're not going to be able to walk for 10 miles in one direction, obviously. But if you get in there and you let a dog do its thing, you'll find out how much, how, how, how easy it is to overlook cover in there and how often people just hunt around the best stuff and just let that dog go. And you, you can find so many cool opportunities to do that. It doesn't, you don't have to have huge ground. Or if you live in some of these other places where the woodcock migration comes through and you have huge tracts of public land and timber company land, which, you know, rough grouse and, and woodcock territory, you can go do that. It's just a different yeah. scenario than being in the mountains, but it's the same thing. Hey, let the dog, let the dog tell you where the woodcock are. It's, it's, yeah. there's, there's so many opportunities out there. Yeah. We've got snipe out here. It's one of the few things we don't have here in Montana. So I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll share a few of my, my, blue grouse and, and Montana honey holes in trade to come out and, and, and chase a few woodcock someday. Cause that's just, that's just really sporty and cool. And have you ever fun. done it? I would love to say I did get to hunt woodcock a couple of times in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. um, you know, but, but never, you know, never with birch and, and uh, yet. So I'd love to, to, yeah, that's, that's kind of super cool. It's, it's interesting some of my other contacts out in Bozeman will say the same thing. Like, that's all I want to do is have a traditional woodcock hunt. And people, I get emails and stuff. People get mad at me because I kind of talk down on woodcock hunting sometime because it's, it's honestly, w- w- the places we have to hunt in Northern Wisconsin, it is just not very challenging. When, when the, when oh, the, really? yeah, when the migration's coming through and we, we, my buddies and I've been doing it a long time. We have places where it's like, real consistent and it's a three bird limit with a good dog it's it, a lot of times right. it just doesn't take very long for us really? and so yeah. for me you know everybody who's listening you to this shoot more like me <laughs> then you're hunting longer it's I'm, I'm telling you it's just not it's just not difficult because we have places they're coming through where we just know it and you know a lot of times because we we bow hunt a lot we get clued into when the migration is really going because you're sitting out there at first and last light and you start seeing the woodcock come through but now it's just it's, it's so, we, we still do it a lot, you know, and we're, we're looking for grouse and other stuff too, but it's, it, we're just spoiled. Like it's, it's just not that difficult for us to get. And, and so it's one of those things where you just take it for granted because you have it. If it went away, I would miss it. You know, it's the same thing like where I grew up in Southeastern Minnesota, I trout fished a lot and we could catch native brookies in a bunch of places and big browns in other rivers. And then the browns kind of took over and took over and took over and the water seemed to get a little bit warmer. And now you can't really find a brook trout there. And so, you know, it's, it's these opportunities that, you know, you don't know what you got until it's gone basically. And so long story long, if you want to shoot some woodcock, come on out. (laughs) We we can a hundred percent make that happen. I promise not to stay more than a month. <laughs> we, we we can make that happen. I think you would be blown away. I think a lot of people would be blown away if they saw, you know, and and this, so this is another thing not to veer way off course here, but, uh, you know, I spend so much time hunting public land and it, it came from bow hunting. You know, it's, that's, that's always kind of, it's been my thing for a long time is to find whitetails on public land. And it just, it morphed into the bird thing and the duck thing. And what I've realized is as bird hunters, dog owners, sporting dog owners, we hear things like, well, there's no quail left or the woodcock migration isn't what it used to be. But when you get out there and you spend more time out there and you go looking for these opportunities, especially with a good dog and a good dog is awesome on two levels. It's motivation to get out there. It's a higher level of success on the on the back end. But you find that there are opportunities out there that are way better than just would come up in the average conversation. And you know, a prime example of that. In, in my neck of the woods is rough grouse, you know, rough grouse cycle. We have a 10 year cycle and yep. depending on winter conditions, we might have, 
you know, a really defined cycle or we might have low for a long time. It's just, and, and so what you hear is, oh, the grouse counts, the drumming counts are down. So it's not worth going hunting. And it's like, it's not like there aren't grouse out there. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, you're not at, you're not at your peak. You're not at your boom years, but it doesn't mean it's not worth going. And it's the same thing with the pheasants and the quail. You hear, oh, well, you know, there's no quail left. So why would I go? I'm like, get out there. Like there's, yeah, there's birds to be had. And, it, you know, like the worst case scenario is you go spend a day hunting with your dog. <laughs> like, Yeah, exactly. And you see, you know, and you see a coyote and a badger and a beautiful sunrise and, a, you know, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, yeah. there's so much of it that just being out with them and the, and the, the stuff that they show you quite apart from the hunting part of it. It's amazing when they track a bird and they get on it and all that, but you know, just, just being out that that's the point, you know? Yeah. I, I always say, uh, you know, if you're, if you're on the fence about whether you should do something with your dog, just ask them and see what they say. (laughs) And if your dog's like, yes, boss, let's go hunting, then just go. Of course. Yeah. Cause, cause when, when do you regret that? You know, you don't you, get out. you might get cold, you might fall through the ice, you might whatever, but you know, yeah. I, 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 you, you never come back and say, wow, that was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. It's, I, I look at it the same way. My little girls, if they want to go catch frogs or go fishing or something, it's always a good idea. I'm never like, oh, this sucks catching frogs with them. I'm always like, yes, this is the best thing we could be doing right now. So yeah. anyway, buddy, yeah. let's, let's wrap this up. Um, let everybody know where they can find, uh, Working dogs for conservation, all that good stuff out there oh, on the internet. You. Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking about that. Um, we our our website is wd4c the number four c dot org, um, and uh, and we're on Instagram and Facebook. Just search you know uh, working dogs for conservation, and you know I'll make sure to get you the, the the links and all of that for your for for the show notes and things like that. Perfect. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Yeah, thanks for t- helping us tell the story. That's it for this episode of Sporting Dog Talk. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And of course, if you liked what you heard on this episode, please, please, please subscribe. That helps us out so much when we get to see the support from our audience. And lastly, thanks for listening.